Thanks for listening to this podcast from Christ Church of Orinoco. Our hope is that it would help you discover completeness in Jesus. Now for this week's teaching. All right, guys, we'll go ahead and get started. Can you hear me all right? Cool. Right. All right, guys, chapter two. Who got a chance to read that this last week? Anybody? How many of you left saying, what? Because <laughs> that was me the first time I read it. Um, well, I, what I want to do before we jump in, just kind of recap a little bit about what we have kind of been talking about. Uh, first off was Babylon has taken Israel into captivity, right? Uh, because of Jehoiakim's rebellion, Nebuchadnezzar took the Israelites into captivity. But more importantly, the only reason he did this was because God allowed him to. Because God's hand was on this situation from the very beginning. And in, in, in Babylon, really taking the Israelites into captivity, they attempt to, they really, they attempt to uh, assimilate them. They change their names. They, they be, try to change their identities. They uh, try to teach them a new culture, a new language, uh, to ultimately try to use their culture to indoctrinate them so that ultimately they are spreading their influence. Uh, and then we talked about, uh, really, Daniel and and. Azariah, um, Mishael, and Hananiah, those, three, those four guys, their faithfulness. And even the faithfulness of, you know, Daniel kind of started, the, he's the instigator of this diet. And what we came as a reminder of is that this isn't a diet necessarily that's going to make us skinny, although eating vegetables probably will make you skinny. But the point of Daniel's diet was that he was relying on God. That's the point. And we don't know whether it was because of this was food sacrificed to idols. We don't know if it was because he was trying to rely on what was naturally growing. We don't know if it was a, an intentional fast that, so that he was really just relying simply upon God and that he would kind of be able to have something that we, he was in control of as all these new ideas and languages and names bombarded them and their culture. Uh, we don't know exactly why, but we know that regardless, God did a miraculous thing. They ate vegetables, and they got fatter. <laughs> and in that time, that was a good thing. That was a good thing. They were healthy, and they looked good. Um, and then we talked about, ultimately, that God gave Daniel and his friends favor, wisdom, intelligence, understanding, to be able to grapple with where they were, but also that they would begin to rise in the rankings of the Babylonian Empire. Now, we don't see that yet in chapter 1. What, the only thing that we saw was that they were going to be taken in and going to be taught all these things, and that in that teaching, they were excelling at an, an incredible rate. Uh, they were 10 times greater, so chapter 1 says, uh, than any other person that was involved in this guild, in this, in this group of people that were ultimately uh, supposed to be the wise men of, of, this, uh, of this culture. So, chapter 2 is where we begin to see this elevation begin to take place a little bit. So, first thing I want to do, a little icebreaker for us, okay? So, I want you to talk with your table, and this is going to stress the introverts out. I already know it, but you'll be all right. Uh, just let the extrovert at your table talk first, and you'll be okay. Um, I'm going to give you just a couple minutes, and what I want you to do is I want, to t- I want you to figure out who has the craziest recurring dream, like in their lifetime. What's the craziest recurring dream that you had? Figure out who at your table has the craziest recurring dream, okay? Go. That means that ha- you've had it like a couple times, right? You've had it a couple times throughout your life. It's like the dream you keep thinking about for whatever reason, subconsciously. Okay, so I was, <laughs> I was talking to this table. 
Everybody feels a little weird sharing their dreams because, like, you're scared of like people. What people will see is happening on the subconscious level. Um, but um, it's really an interesting thing. So the the most common dreams, the five most common dreams. So raise your hand if you've had a dream of your teeth falling out. <laughs> have you had that dream before? One of the most common dreams that people have. I've had that dream. Okay, flying. Anybody flying? Yep. One of the most common dreams. Uh, falling is another one. Yeah. Okay, it seems like that one's the most, all right. Uh, showing up somewhere naked. Anybody done that? Not even my subconscious has allowed me to do that, thank God. Being chased. Have you guys had that? Yes. The we- I don't know if you guys have experienced this, but I feel like when I'm being chased, I can't actually move my body. Like I'm like paralyzed or something. It's so weird. I don't know why that is. Probably because my brain's like, you're not really awake. But anyways, um, the most vivid dream that I've had it ha- actually happened when I was in college. And I'll set up the context for you a little bit. It's kind of creepy. It's a little bit weird. Uh, and so let me, let me, but that's how dreams are, all right? So remember, no judging here. Don't judge my subconscious. Uh, so when I was in the dorms at Ozark, this is a dream I still remember so vividly. I remember it as vividly as the night that I woke up from it. Um, the dream that I had at Ozark was at a time where we had heard, you know, I was with a bunch of guys in my room, in my dorm room, and we had heard this rumor going around that somebody was just experiencing what seemed to be like demonic oppression within our, uh, within our school. There was a person. Um, and we were all sitting in, in our room, and we were kind of talking about this, and, and uh, we really, and I, I mean this, and really almost, I feel, I feel bad about it, because ultimately what we were doing is we were making light of it. And I think that's probably because we just didn't understand it. And I think that that's probably what we do in times where we don't really understand those things. Our skepticism kicks in and we begin to think like, oh, that's nothing. It's just they're blowing up something that's a big deal. That's not really a big deal. Uh, when, when in actuality, I think what really is, it's just our natural inclination to kind of get away from the things that we don't understand. But we, I, really, I went to bed that night and I was like, God, if this is real, like if the, if the demonic activity, the, the spiritual realm, like, I mean, obviously I believe in it because I believe in God and I believe in the stories that, that the scripture tells, but at some level, I've never really experienced it myself. And so um, I just, I asked God as I was, as I was praying that night, God, like, if this is real, can you just like help me wrap my mind around it? Not, I mean, obviously I'm not going to wrap my whole mind around it, right? But give me a taste of it or something. I don't know. And so I don't know if it was because I had prayed that prayer and God was answering it. I don't know if it was because it was on my mind right before I went to bed. I don't know. But this is what happened. So I, I go to sleep and I wake up, but I'm still in my dream, right? And w- the, where I'm at is this weird house. It's, I've never been in this house before, never seen it before, but it's only got two uh, locations in it, the living room. And then what's attached to it on the back side is the kitchen. And what happens is I go into the living room and my buddy's sitting there and he's watching things he shouldn't be watching. And I'm like, dude, what are you doing? You can't be looking at this stuff. Like, that's not okay. And so I leave, I go into the kitchen and all of a sudden there's this dark figure just standing there. And I, all of a sudden the cabinet's open and I'm just sta- looking, at, looking at this guy and I realize, like, I come to this conclusion, this is a demon. Like, this is something dark. And I can't move my body. And so I just start praying at it. I just start praying all these prayers. Um, and then finally it goes away. And I go around the other side, this door that comes back to the living room. And I go to my buddy and I'm like, dude, you will never guess what just happened. And then I realize he's possessed. And I'm like, 
just start praying at him. You know, I start praying and praying at him, like, in the name of Jesus, get out of there. In the name of Jesus, get out of there. Um, and then I wake up. I wake up from my dream, and I'm in my room, but I'm still asleep. And what I see is I'm in my bed, and I'm looking across, and the way that Ozark's dorms are, it's like there's a bed here, like on one side, there's a bed on the other, and then there's like a, a desk and a bookshelf and all that. And my roommate is looking through his books. And again, I can't move my body. And so I'm just, sta- I'm just laying there paralyzed, and I'm looking at my friend, and I realize I think he's demon-oppressed too. And so I start ye- like just praying and yelling, like, in the name of Jesus, like, get out of here, get out of here, get out of here. Um, and finally, I wake up, and this time I'm really awake. And I'm like, it's like 3 in the morning, and I'm like, oh my gosh. Like, I look at my phone, I'm like, what, is, what just happened? And then I look over, and my roommate sits up in his bed, looks at the closet and stares at his closet. And then he lays back down and I'm like, (laughs) what? I'm like, are you awake? And he said, yeah. And I was like, what are you doing? He's like, I don't know. And I was like, okay. And so I just go back to like, well, I don't just go back to sleep. I lay there for a long time. And I'm like, what is in that closet? (laughs) You know? Uh, but eventually, finally, I fall back to sleep. It was not a great night of sleep, but I, I don't remember anything else. You know, I just went back to sleep, woke up the next morning, saw my roommate the next day, um, later on that day, and was like, dude, do you remember like waking up last night? And like, He's like, no, I don't remember that at all. I was like, what the heck? So, most vivid dream I've ever had. It left me, I mean, I remember, I'm telling you, I remember it as vividly as I, as I did when I had it. And to me, it was, it was God answering a prayer in a very real way of the fact that these things exist. And what I think that really what we need to even see throughout Daniel as we begin to read it is this powerful force that is ultimately working against God at all times. We're going to see that powerful, powerful force when we get a little bit further more into the visions. But this kind of fear, uh, my, the fear that I experienced in my dream is, is just little, I think, very small in comparison to what Nebuchadnezzar felt when he had this dream. And so uh, let me read for you just that verse 1 of chapter 2. It says, In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. His spirit was troubled. Now what I've read is that that word, when they're explaining that, they're saying it's almost as if a hammer hit an anvil or a bell. That the reverberation, the, the intensity of the feeling that Nebuchadnezzar felt troubled him so deeply that he decided, like, he had to figure out the answer to this. He had to figure out the answer, okay? So I want to read for us 2, uh, 1 through 18, which I know is a little bit long, uh, but it goes pretty quick. So just follow along with me as I read it. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I had a dream and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, now just a little note there, that this is where the rest of our text switches over to Aramaic. We've talked about that a little bit. This is right here. Some people think that in Aramaic is actually a parenthetical within the text saying, okay, we're going to Aramaic now. But regardless, it starts when the Chaldeans respond to the king. And it will go all the way through, through chapter 7. O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will show your servant, or, and we will show the interpretation. 
The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. They answered a second time and said, Let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will show its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know with certainty that you are trying to gain time, because you see that the word from me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me to the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know that you can show me its interpretations. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. For no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. Now remember that. Verse 11, remember that. Mark that. Because of this, the king was angry and very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out, and the wise men were about to be killed, and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, Why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel. And Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed, might, might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. All right. So let's unpack this a little bit. All right. So again, we talked about this dream has shaken Nebuchadnezzar so much so that um, we, we really don't know necessarily know why he's, he, he desires the, this group of wise men, of the, the counselors, these advisors, to, all, to, tell, to tell him the dream and the interpretation. Um, it was pretty common for, for really people within this time period to have dreams and then for people to come and interpret them. In fact, we have found Babylonian and uh, Egyptian documents that are essentially like their dream books. And they just kind of kept a catalog of people's dreams. And they began to associate them together to try to draw in the meaning of the dreams that people would have. And so this was a pretty regular practice. And, and really what they would do is they would use the sky. They would use the stars. They would use uh, livers of, of animals and kind of just lots of methods ultimately to kind of figure out what these dreams meant, how to read the signs, uh, how to read creation around them to figure out what exactly was going on, whether they were good omens or bad omens. But what happens is Nebuchadnezzar has become so struck by this dream that he's not content with just knowing the interpretation. For him to know whether the interpretation is really true, he wants to also hear that they know the dream as well. Because if they don't know the dream, then they could just be telling him an interpretation. And what we come to find out, obviously, is you know when he sees the statue, the dream, right, it crumbles into pieces. And so probably what's going on is he believes that that statue in some way represents him. And that there is a threat to his power, which is, again, a common thing. There was assassination plots. There were, you know, coups that would take place. And ultimately, uh, the life of the most powerful man is, was always at risk at this point uh, because he had to rely on the trust of those around him. 
And so for him, this was like death or life, you know, like I, he had to figure it out. Um, and really, one of the things that is interesting, even about the Babylonians, is they were really good at uh, keeping track of what they were observing. Um, they, they really, they, I mean, lots of people did this, but especially with the Babylonians. So let me give you an example. In my research when I was doing this, there's a Babylonian astronomer, astronomer named Nabu, uh, let me see if I can say his name right, Nabu-Ramanu, uh, who is from 500 BC, so pretty close to this, this era. And they found something of his uh, that was his calculation of a year, of how long a year was. This was his calculation. This was just from observing the stars in the sky and mapping them and doing all that. This is what he says. 365 days, 6 hours, 15 minutes, and 41 seconds. The real time that we know now with the advanced technology that we have is it's 365 days, 5 hours, 48 minutes, and 46 seconds. He was 26 minutes and 55 seconds off. Wow. This was in the 500 BCs, so long before our technology has advanced. This is how accurate they were. It was incredible. And they relied on this. I mean, this is why so many of their gods were create, like creation-based. They, uh, you know, they were over the sky and the moon and, and the waves and the sun and all these things because they, they began to see that there was, some, there was some order to them, some meaning behind them that they were beginning to observe. So uh, one of the questions even within this is why wasn't Daniel called? Now, if you'll notice who was called, it was... Uh, the magicians, the conjurers, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans. Now, who has Babylonians in theirs? Does anyone have Babylonians? Or, if, or uh, the other one was uh, astrologers. That's right. Um, so what, what's happening there? It's a really small thing. Um, well, in some cases. I mean, I guess it depends on who you are. But for us, it's a small thing. And essentially, actually, I meant to mention this in chapter 1 as well. In chapter 1, you, you probably read Babylonians. I can't remember what verse exactly. Um, oh, when it says he's teaching them the language and the culture of the... It says the Babylonians. And actually, it's the same word that's used here. It's the Chaldeans. And it's really just a, a minor little thing. It's, uh, Chaldeans were the Babylonians at the time. They were kind of the Chal- Chaldeans were like the tribe that took over Babylon um, at the time. So Nebuchadnezzar was a, was a Chaldean. And... Uh, they became known for astrology. They became known for that skill. And so really what, even what we're seeing here within those different translations that you may have is uh, really an interpretation, an ter- interpretive uh, part on, um, on, the, on the part of your translation that you're reading, on the group that translated that. They're kind of making a, a, an interpretive uh, word there. And they're doing so with, with fairly good um, research to back it up, right? But they are, gonna, they are, they are making an interpretive um, decision there. So just know that it's not a huge deal. Essentially what they're saying is that not only are the, is this a Chaldean, but specifically what, how Daniel uses this word is he's trying to, to acknowledge the astrological part of it all. Um, the zodiac sign and all those things, those are all kind of coming up at this point. So they, they, the Chaldeans were part of really what, what made those things uh, exciting within this time. So, um, Anyways, Nebuchadnezzar calls all these people and none of them can do it. Why wasn't Daniel called? Well, there's a couple of different theories about why this is. If you'll notice, it says in the second year, the first one, it says the second year of Nebuchadnezzar. And so it's possible that Daniel wasn't done with his training yet. 
right? It was a three-year training. And so it's possible that either Daniel wasn't quite done or he was getting near the end of it. Uh, We're not exactly sure of that. Um, but regardless, what we are sure of, he's probably pretty young, right? Because we said, we said he probably would have been 14 or 15 going into exile. So he's probably like 16, 17, 18 at this time, uh, which is pretty crazy. Uh, you know, I, I don't know if most of you guys have read Daniel, but when I, you know, when I first read Daniel, I'm reading it as like, this is an older gentleman who's really wise, you know? And uh, what we begin to find out, you know, through, through what we begin to see through the Persian Empire and stuff is really these, these were probably boys that were ultimately being indoctrinated with some of these things. This is a young guy, right? A young guy that is ultimately doing crazy things. So, um, yeah, we're not really sure about why it is he wasn't involved, but when they don't get it right, what Nebuchadnezzar decides is this whole group really isn't worth it. Uh, if you guys can't do this thing, then either you're not okay with the gods so that they're telling you, or you were, or you essentially have been lying about the gods. And so either way, you deserve to be destroyed. And so what Nebuchadnezzar does is he decides, I'm going to destroy all of these people, all the people that have said that they're studying these things, and now I need it the most, and it's not coming through. And so he puts out this, essentially this uh, command, this decree to kill everybody. <laughs> all, well, not everybody, but, you know, all the wise men, essentially. Uh, all right, so a couple things. One of my favorite things, actually, about this, and verse 5, if you'll notice in verse 5. It says, The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. So obviously, this shows the seriousness of what's happening. But another translation for uh your house shall be laid in ruins is also your house shall essentially become a dunghill. And I always go with the funniest translation, even if it's the least accurate. So just another two cents. Um, one of the things about verse five, again, we're, we're trying to figure out why exactly he hasn't, he's not, he's not letting, he's not telling them the dream for it to be interpreted, you know. Uh, but one of the things we begin to find out is, again, he's, this is a serious thing. He's trying to figure it out as, most, as, as much as possible. And Daniel gets a hold of the information. And really, what he wants, um, what he's trying to figure out is how he can be a help at this point. So Daniel smooth talks his way. As he has done thus far, the favor that God has given him, he's able to convince Arioch to give him some time. Give me some time, I will figure this out, and we'll do this. Okay, so then we get, I'm kind of going through this. This is like one of the longest chapters, so I'm kind of skimming through it, so I'm sorry about that. Um, Verse 17, we get to verse 17. And what does it say? It says, Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions. Okay, now, do you guys remember what their names mean? Anybody? Would you guys remember what Hananiah means? The Lord is gracious. Mishael, you guys remember that one? Who is what God is? And then Azariah, you remember that? Now, what's interesting is why, why their Hebrew names are used here. We've switched to Aramaic, and when we start talking about the, 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 the furnace, you know, when they get thrown in, most of us know that story. Their names go back to their Aramaic ones. What's thought is that when these names are being used, the reason they're being used is because that is the God that they need. They need the God that their names are explaining. They need the God who is gracious. They need the God who is helper. They need the God who is God. They need this God because their lives are in danger. 
And what they are seeking is mercy. Now this is an important part to this whole section. Is that when they pray for this mercy, they never presume that God will give it. They never presume that. Even when they go into the furnace, what do they say? I don't know if God's going to save us, but here's what I do know. He will, his will will be done. He's in control. And that's what we've been saying over and over again. God is in control. And their prayer for mercy is not based off of the presumption that God will meet it. And this is an important part for us as we begin to enter into this discussion. They are young men whose lives are at stake. And they're going before the living God, praying that he hears them, despite the fact that they have been pushed into exile because of their disobedience. They're throwing up a Hail Mary, literally. Not Well, not literally, because they're not hailing Mary, but you get it. <laughs> they're throwing up a prayer. And the reality of what's going on is so heavy that we must begin to acknowledge their faithfulness within it, their attitude, that they're asking for mercy. They're not asking for what they believe that they deserve. And how many times do we feel like going to God in the times of our suffering that we presume that God has to help us because we've been good? God has to help us because we've gone to church and we've done all the things right. And why, God? Why Why are you absent? And what we're reminded through this story is that God is in control and God has a will and he invites us to be a part of it. Even if that means glorifying himself at the expense of our life, knowing that he will give it back to us. One of the greatest parts about being a Christian is that death holds so little over us anymore. Death holds so little over us anymore. And yet so many of our prayers become reduced to wanting to see our loved ones healed of the things that they're going through. And don't get me wrong, that's a good thing. That's a good thing. But maybe our prayer should be changed to how God can be glorified in the midst of those things, knowing that what is really necessary is for that one moment where someone comes to see and experience the life in Jesus because they know that death will not be the final word, that death will not take anything that God will not give back. And what these men have begun to see is that there is a faithful God moving toward them. And they hope that this might be in the will to spare their lives one more time, one more time. Maybe, perhaps, the Lord will be our helper. The Lord will be gracious. And we can continue to acknowledge who it is that God is. And it reminds me of that prayer, Jesus' prayer uh, in the garden, right? God, if I don't have to die on the cross, I'm cool with that. But if I do, okay, Okay, because I know that I trust you with the ends of what these things will mean, even if I don't always understand them. Now, in this story, what we get to see is the power of God ultimately displayed. We get to see ultimately what happens when um, God's hand begins to invade their story because he's trying to work a redemptive, really a redemptive plan throughout it. But I don't think we can, I don't want us to miss this idea. Where do we run to in fear and trial? Where do we run to? Because one of the defining characteristics of a Christian, when they, really, it's not that they don't face uncomfortable situations. Being a Christian doesn't mean your life is better or perfect or whatever. Well, it means it's better, but it doesn't mean it's perfect. It doesn't mean that you no longer suffer. It means that when suffering does come, you run to God, not from Him. 
And what these men are displaying for us in light of their sin, in light of their exile, in light of God's punishment, is that they still trust Him. And we should do the same. And so what I don't want us to miss is ultimately what God's will is for our lives is one that we won't always understand, but one that we can't always trust. And that prayer does such an amazing job at realigning our hearts to be more concerned with our Father who art in heaven and how holy is His name and His kingdom come and His will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's the point. That's the point. So before I go on uh, anymore, is there any specific questions about this section? Nailed it. Sweet. All right. Yeah. Yes. In your notes? Yes. Okay. So uh, what he's talking about is um, what translation is that? What is it? A Bible study that you're. NRSV, okay. So what he's talking about is some believe that there's a discrepancy. Let me, re- oh, let me rephrase the question. Someone's like, you need to rephrase the question more. What he's asking is, it's saying in the second year of King Nebuchadnezzar, and, and his Bible's saying that in the footnotes, right, or in the commentary, essentially, that there's a slip up there, that it shouldn't be the second year, that Daniel, I'm assuming that's kind of saying Daniel made a mis- might have made a mistake. And, and that, is a, that is a belief, um, but what Tripper Longman notes, and actually... Uh, Several biblical scholars, Stephen Miller is another one, um, E.J. Young is another one. What they, what they have noted is actually that what Daniel's using, even from the start of his book, is a Babylonian timeline, not a Jewish one. And what we actually see a distinction, even when, when Jeremiah um, starts to talk a little bit about, the, about what's happening within um, the timeline of Nebuchadnezzar taking the, the Israelites into captivity. And so... I, what my understanding is that Daniel, being in Babylon, is using the calendar of Babylon, um, not the Israelite calendar that he would have typically used. Now, I don't know exactly why that is. It could be because he doesn't have a, he's not keeping track of it in the same way. Um, and they're, they're pretty similar. The biggest distinction is they both operate off a lunar calendar. They both actually see the new year, what they call Nisan, is kind of in the March-April area. They both see that as kind of the new year. But the distinction is how they identify um, events, actually. And so Nebuchadnezzar, for instance, uh, one of the things that is noted for, the, for a Babylonian king is that their first year of being in a kingdom is actually one of ascension. And so even though they may be ruling for a year, they're not actually distinguished as being the king um, in its official capacity. It's, it's a, the year of ascension, essentially, is what it's called. And so um, what some people believe is that he was in a year of ascension, and then there's the first year of his, of his actually reigning kingdom, and then the second year, of his actual, and, and second year of his actual reigning kingdom. And so what you're hearing here is that second year. Um, that could be an option. The other option is that Daniel perhaps made a mistake. I mean, that's, a, that's an option. Um, and people make an argument for that. My, my, I generally tend to think that, it, that he was going off of that Babylonian calendar because he was entrenched in the culture. Uh, when he was writing this book, which, which at this point even would have been 70 years after the fact. Um, so, I mean, 70 years entrenched in a culture, my guess is you're going to start to use their language a little bit when you're referring to those things, personally, I believe. So, yeah. Does anybody have any more questions about that or anything else? I, I do. Yeah. Uh, in my Bible, it was 
that calls his dreams the forgotten dream. Oh, it does? And it said he had, it doesn't say he had a, a dream, it said he had dreams. Hmm. Mm-hmm. But he wants to know about this one, which maybe you can't remember, I don't know. What translation do you have? Uh, NASB. NASB, okay. So NASB is one of the more precise um, translations. So what he was asking is, when it's talking about, um, when it's talking about the dreams, it says that he had a forgotten dream, that he had many dreams. And, uh, and so your NIV, maybe your NIV, your ESV, they're going to read a little bit differently. NA, NASB, when I say it's more precise, I mean that they are trying to go word for word. Uh, there's not as much interpretive framework in it, and um, it's also a little bit more clunky to read because when you go word for word from Aramaic, in this case, into, uh, into English, it's just a little clunkier. So all that to say, that is a, that is a, a possibility. There, we're not exactly sure on the language of it. Um, it could be that it's forgotten, or it could be that he had many dreams. Um, we're just, it's the, the phrasing is a little uncertain. And they think that they might have borrowed from a Persian word, actually. Um, and I can't remember the name of the Persian word because I don't know Persian, but I know that it's something like that. I think Tremper Longman might talk about that even a little bit. So it's a good, good question, though, why that distinction might be within different translations. They're trying to kind of figure out exactly what Daniel's trying to say there. Yeah. Uh, on the diet? Yes, on the diet. Uh, one of the translations that I read by went back into um, Jeremiah, I think it was. But anyway... They all were on kosher food, and they didn't believe that some of the meat was, the blood was drained out of the meat, mm. and therefore it was unclean. Mm. Back then, it was unclean. So, yeah. that's another reason that they didn't maybe eat the meat. Well, yeah, that, and that could be. And, you know, one of the things we talked about last time was, um, it, could be, it could have been that it went against the, those dietary laws. The only problem is that the wine isn't a part of the dietary laws. And so we, we have a hard time understanding why it is they wouldn't have drank the wine, you know, in addition to the, in addition to the meat. And in chapter 10, there's an implication that they might have participated in it still. Um, so it's, yeah, it's kind of a murky, it's murky, but I mean, there could be something along those dietary laws still, even in regards to uh, sacredness and the, the holiness aspect of being a part of the nation of Israel. So, yeah. Anything else? Yeah. Tell him the dream. I mean, interpreting it would be one thing, but to tell him the dream. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, uh, so why would why would they ask? Why would they? Ask, why would the king ask them to tell them the dream? And I think that it, I, my opinion of it. I mean, we again we're kind of speculating a little bit because Daniel doesn't tell us why he does this. My opinion is that he believes it's so serious that he knows the the real interpretation that the the, the interpretation be absolutely true that he can't trust them if they can't if he can't tell them the dream so if they can tell if they can tell him the dream all of his contents without him even telling them what it was that he dreamed about then he would know for sure that their interpretation was probably right because of the nature of the dream the statue falling to pieces and it resembling most likely him and again he could have probably been fearful for his life you know so yeah good question anything else it's a lot of questions i like it all right he have been vacillating between Daniel's God and his God? Well, we'll talk about that a little bit because at the end, right? At the end, he. Yeah, and. Exactly, yeah, he comes to an understanding. What what most commentators say, and I tend to agree with them, only because of what, when we get to um, 
chapter 3, I think, is ultimately he kind of switches back to making the idol. Yeah, it's chapter 3. He makes that new idol. And so he may acknowledge that their God exists, but in a polytheistic way. So that ultimately he just believes he's a part of the pantheon of gods. Just, this is another God. He's clearly powerful. I'll give him some honor, but not a, 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 a specific allegiance to him in a monotheistic way. You know, that only this is the only God type of, type of idea. Does that stand after he goes out into the wilderness and becomes like an animal? Well, we don't know about that. Uh, it's possible because when he comes back, right, he praises God and he gives glory to God bec- and he's, because he's humbled in that fashion. Um, and so it's possible, you know, it's possible. We're only because of that small snippet, you know, I don't know, but I hope so. And it certainly seems that even in the dream, which we'll get to, even in the dream, he's the head of gold, right? Uh, we don't know much about the dream outside of that one fact is that he's the head of gold, which is the most valuable part of that structure, and so what we, we don't think, most people don't think, is because he was the most powerful kingdom. You know, when we, get to, when we start talking about Greece and Alexander the Great, you know, um, he was a little bit better in terms of his power. But it could be in, in, regards, to, um, in regards to his actual, you know, value as, some, as, a, as a kingdom in general, as delegating that kingdom and even how God saw him. Maybe, you know, speculation, like I said. But um, as far as we know, so it's, but it's possible. It's possible. And we'll definitely get to that. We'll get to that for sure. So, anything else? Cool. All right. Well, let's read this prayer. Okay, so 2, 19 through 24 says, after Daniel and his companions, they've, they've gone to God and they've begged him for mercy to reveal what it is uh, this dream consists of. And he says... Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and might, and have now made known to me what we have asked of you. For you have made known to us the king's matter. All right. Oh, and then it says, Therefore Daniel went into Arioch, whom the king had appointed, to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went in and said thus to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show the king the interpretation. So, let's talk about this prayer a little bit. Um... First off, major thing, he calls God what? In, in uh, 19, in verse 19. Daniel blessed the God of what? Heaven. That's a really important title that he's given. Again, he's not describing God by name right now, and he won't do that until chapter 9. What he's describing is, is his activity. He's God of heaven. So we've been talking about astrology, we've been talking about the creation around the world, and these astrologers, and these people, this group of men who say, I can read the signs, I have an intimacy and a relationship with the gods, that ultimately I can begin to interpret the things. And Daniel comes back and he says, this is the God of heaven, blessed be the God of heaven, the only God of heaven, the only God over creation. He's making a specific point, and he's going to use this title a couple times. Don't miss the weight of it. This is a, a big, heavy term that he's making a theological stance with. The God of heaven. The God over every other God. Now, here's what I want to know. 
Why does he say, blessed be the God of heaven? What are, what are his reasons why through that prayer that you're seeing? I'll give you the first one. Wisdom and power belong to him. What else? Maybe because he's talking to astronomers. Yeah, absolutely. And so within that, that makes even the next, like if you're looking through this prayer, like what are the reasons this, the, the name of God should be blessed forever and ever? What are, what are those in light of that? He changes the times and the seasons. Again, going back to this creative, the creation aspect, this creation narrative, that this is the God in control of the times and seasons. They have, may have been able to measure it, but they still did not know the hand that was behind it. Why else is this God worthy to be praised? He has wisdom, but he also gives it. Yes, he has wisdom and power, right? We said that, but he also gives it. And he's giving it to Daniel right now. He's giving him a wisdom and a power, another reason to praise him. What other? He reveals, he reveals the dark, hidden things. The Absolutely. He reveals the mysteries. He knows what's in the darkness. We should all be afraid at that point. He knows what's in the darkness. He knows all of the hidden things. And not just the things that we don't know, but even the darkest parts of our life. He knows them. And He is the light that will expose them. He is the light that reveals them. And there will be a day when He reveals those things. But what's happening right now is Daniel is specifically talking about this revelation that this is the God who shines light on mysteries that no human could fathom. No human could be able to know what this man dreamed outside of God's specific intervention. Yeah, what else? What other reasons are there to praise him? That's right. He removes and establishes kings. Nebuchadnezzar is the most powerful king. Most powerful king. And yet it is only by the fact that God allowed him to be. And God is using him ultimately for a purpose that is redemptive in his own plans. In his goodness, in his faithfulness. Yes. Perfect. And last reason. Last reason. I mean, there's lots of, lots of reasons. But last one that I think we can point out in this prayer. He revealed the dream. I think, and, and I would say, in addition, like coupled with that, ultimately, he answered. That when they prayed, he answered. And of course, he could have answered no. But how great, what, how how worthy of praise is he that he, in his mercy, the fact that they're in exile because of the, the things that they had done against God, and yet, even when they come before him, if they would just run to him in times of suffering, maybe he would begin to show his mercy in an unfathomable way. He answers. He answers. Yes, perfect. Do you guys have any questions about that prayer? Roberta. <laughs> I know you got another one coming for me, so it's all right. Mm. Yeah. So uh, you're saying if he's praying this in public, people are actually over, also, additionally overhearing the fact that. He is praising this God of heaven 
that is their God. Is that what you're saying? Well, it's everybody's God. Well, yeah. It makes me Oh, for sure. I think that's definitely true. Yeah, they have a they have uh, the Babylonians and really many religions at this time had a had a pantheon of gods. They had many gods that were kind of over different things. And we kind of talked about their their major god, the one that they believed was all powerful over the pantheon, was Marduk. Yeah, um, but um, yeah, I mean that's part of why you know we'll get to the end of this and you know kind of ask the question: Well, why didn't they give up their allegiance? you know, to all these other gods and just follow this one. And I think that the reality is they probably ended up believing in this one. They probably end up believing in Yahweh, in the God of the Israelites. You know, he's God of everybody, but at this point he's, he's not on their part, their God, right? And I think that he probably becomes acknowledged, but he doesn't become exclusively followed. And I think that will become um, pretty clear even in the next few chapters as we see people trying to take their life. All right. Anything else? Oh, yeah. Do you think one that reveals deep and hidden things, maybe talking about Judgment Day, and he knows what lies in the darkness for those that don't choose him? Well, I think that, at least in this case, what Daniel's praising him for in regards to the hidden things is in a um, a specific way related to what Nebuchadnezzar's dream is. Now, that does have to do with, the, with latter days, is, is what your Bible, I think, might read. Or um, the, the end of time, or the, the end of what we would know to be the establishment of the kingdom of God, at least. Or the beginning of the kingdom of God. Um, so, in that sense, that, I would say that's true. I think Daniel's kind of focusing in on that, on that dream, for, sure, for specifically. But it would, it would include those, those aspects. So, anything else? Yeah. Chapters of this to uh, write this on cards and to commit it to memory. Oh wow! And to repeat it over and over and over. Oh, the prayer or the whole first two chapters? Oh, okay. Yeah, um, there are some. Every time I come across a prayer in Scripture, I always just pause because I'm like, this is so fascinating that we're hearing prayers of people you know, from so long ago, and especially John 14, when Jesus prays. And, you know, I had, I remember reading that not too long ago, thinking, man, he says, Holy Father, Righteous Father. These are the titles that he gives his father. Just, it's interesting. When you think of these boys being 14 and 15 years old, I think of the father and mother of the family that they come from Hmm. had to put this into them um, for them to be this strong, because uh, I know Beth Moore, when we first started, showed us pictures of how they pictured Babylon in those days, and it was the most beautiful place you can even imagine, mm-hmm. with fruits and vegetables and uh, beautiful gardens and water going through it. They, they said it was absolutely gorgeous. Yeah. So it would be um, pleasing to the eye. Hard to resist. It was rest and pleasure, like we would go on vacation. Right, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, so these guys, I can't even imagine. I've been around a lot of 14 and 15-year-olds, and I've raised one. And <laughs> I can't imagine what they must have instilled in him. Yeah. Um, so she was saying just the, the, 
the parenting that must have gone in for these, these four friends was so they should have written a book that we could inherit as well, along with Daniel, on how to parent some kids. Um, that is for sure. I'm trying to get mine to sleep through the night right now, one of them anyways. So the other one to stop in the middle of the night coming to my room and sleeping on my floor in the, in the closet, though, in the closet. It's weird. Anyways, both of them, weirdos, but I love them. <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, we'll go ahead. We'll move on. Um, let's go ahead and go to Daniel 2, 25 through 30, because what time is it? Oh, my gosh. 7.30. We do not have much time. We're not even in the vision yet. Woo! All right. Let's see. What can I cut out? All right. Let's read Daniel 25.30. Then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste and said thus to him, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. The king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen in its, in its interpretation? Daniel answered the king and said, No wise man, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show the king the mystery that the king has asked. Listen, listen closely. But there is a God. There is a God in heaven who reveals these mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed came thoughts of what would be after this. And he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me. Not because of any wisdom, listen, not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living. But in order that the interpretation may be made known to the king. And that you may know the thoughts of your mind. That you may know the thoughts of your mind. That's an important part. This interpretation does not come because Daniel is more wise than somebody else. It comes because he trusts a God who is more wise than everybody else. And he's willing to bet on this God. To put everything in this God. To cry for mercy to this God. knowing, Knowing that even if he doesn't answer, it's still good. That it will be good. And yet he does answer. He reveals the mystery. Um, all right. A couple things within this. Arioch. I'm going to speed through this. Arioch tries to take credit. Hate that guy. All right. Verse 27. Um, notice that none of the men could do it. Okay. This is kind of uh, reminiscent of the fact of the, kind of the contest between the people of God and other gods. Right. We remember Elijah in the contest on Mount Carmel. We remember Joseph. Uh, interpreting the dreams for um, the Pharaoh, right? And we are reminded of the fact that God continues to prove himself over and over again. Um, and what do the people say when God, when God proves himself in Elijah's story? Yahweh is God. He is the Lord. Yahweh is God. Which also is the meaning of Elijah's name, which my name's Elijah. So now you know the meaning of my name. All right. Uh, um, verse 28 there's a God in heaven who reveals these things. That title, again, the God in heaven. It's 29 through 30. Your dream is about what is to come. God, refu- God revealed the future to Nebuchadnezzar. He revealed the future. But God wants Daniel to, to give it to him. And Daniel becomes the representative of God. Daniel becomes God's mouthpiece. Um, in the content of the re- revelation, uh, it's... Obviously, it's kind of confusing. And so that's what I want to jump into. 
the most important part about this is that God isn't just creating a wisdom for Daniel in this moment. He's also sharing with Nebuchadnezzar the fact that he's actually holding the plans of the future. That when Nebuchadnezzar begins to find, like, have this interpretation, when he understands it, what he will begin to see is not only does Daniel possess a wisdom to interpret the dream, but actually that the same God who gave it to him possesses the future in his hands. So let's get into it because we got 15 minutes less than that. All right. Ish. I might go over. All right. But this is, this is the good stuff. We're just trying to get into the good stuff. All right. 231 through 45. I'm going to read through it real quick. You saw, O king, and behold, this is the dream. This is what Nebuchadnezzar saw. A great image. This image, mighty. Listen, this image is mighty and of exceeding brightness stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold. Now, I want you all to look at your little thing, the sheet I gave you as well, all right? This is a little man that I found on Google, all right? But it basically is the picture of what Nebuchadnezzar might have seen. So check that out. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay, and it broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold, all together, were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away, so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven, that God of heaven, the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, and the might, and the glory. He allows it. And into whose hand he has given, wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all. You are the head of gold. You are the head of gold, Nebuchadnezzar. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you. And yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all things. And as you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage. But they will not hold together. Just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. Nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end. And it shall stand forever, just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand. And that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain. And its interpretation, true. Okay. The vision. Let's see. Okay, first things first. Uh, Verse 31. You said you had NASB, right? Would you mind reading verse 31 for us? Okay. You, O king, were looking, and behold, there was a single great statue. 
That statue, which was large and of extraordinary splendor, was standing in front of you, and its appearance was awesome. Yes. So I don't know if you guys heard that or not. The biggest thing I want you to grasp from that, again, NASB, that's, that's the most literal translation we have. And what is missed in most translations is that word single. Can you read that, just that part again, that single part? You, O king, were looking, and behold, there was a single great statue. A single great statue. That's an important part. Because even though this statue represents four different kingdoms, it's all in a single aspect. It's not just representing four kingdoms, it's representing the kingdoms of the human earth. And the difference, the reason why this is significant, the reason why there's this cutoff between uh, the kingdoms, and when this stone comes in and shatters it to pieces, is because a new kingdom is set up that will ultimately eclipse every single other. When we are looking at this statue, it's a single great statue. It looks powerful, it looks immense, it looks Wealthy. It's got gold and silver and bronze. It looks mighty. And yet it will be thrown down by a pebble. And we kind of remember that that once happened with a, another guy once that was looked pretty mighty as well, right? David and Goliath. This is a small pebble that will strike the a stone, that will strike those, those feet, and they will shatter. They will shatter. Um, let's see. What can I cut out? Verse 34, notice that he sa- it says, As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand. It says that again when he's trying to relay what this image really entailed. That this was the stone that was cut out is not the product of anything, anything that we could contribute. And we're going to talk a little bit about that stone, what that stone is, but it kind of says on your thing too. So, spoiler alert, it's Christ. Um, okay, so let's talk about the interpretation. In verse 37 to 38, God has given him power. All right, remember David's prayer, verse 21. He gives and establishes, he takes away those kings. Uh, God has established the power of Nebuchadnezzar, and he is the head of gold. Now, most people believe, most interpretations believe that this, um, that oh, it's almost across the board, that the, like every other kingdom, we're going to try to, to do, like, I'm going to give you guys all the different ideas of what those kingdoms might be, okay, what the interpretations are. It, across the board, everyone believes that Nebuchadnezzar is the head of gold, or that the, the Babylonian kingdom. Um, usually it's associated specifically with the Babylonian kingdom. Some people believe it's an actual king in and of itself, and it would just be Nebuchadnezzar. But all the way across the board, it's a Nebuchadnezzar reference. It's talking about the kingdom of Babylon. Babylon. Um, most people would believe that. Now, it's helpful because Daniel actually says that. So that's why most people believe it, because you can't really you know, go against what the guy is t- saying that it is. Um, after that, it gets a little bit murky. Okay, It gets a little kind of crazy. So the next one, right? it's the, body, the chest and the arms, and they're silver. The stomach and the thighs are bronze, and then uh, the legs and the toes, toesies, feet, are clay and iron. It's kind of a mixture between those. And um, if you check the diagram, you know, that's kind of a helpful visual of what's going on. And what I've also included is a table of charts. So if you notice, there's on the far left, there's the kings. This is a, a very lo- like small minority view that believes that each, like the gold head, the silver um, chest, the bronze, the iron and clay, they, that those are kings. 
Um, it's a very minority view. I've, I've found very little people, scholars, that would say this is probably what it is. But some people do. And so because of that, I went ahead and listed the kings, the Neo-Babylonians, uh, their dynasty. I listed that dynasty at the bottom of the page. And so you can kind of see, uh, because Nebuchadnezzar is king, and we don't really hear about any other uh, king um, within this line from the Babylonian Empire besides one, uh, which is Belshazzar. And we'll talk about him next week. Why isn't he in this list? We'll talk about it next week. Actually, no, not next week. In a couple weeks. All right. Uh, but uh, he is uh, within the kingdom of this, but not in an official capacity. So we'll talk about that when we get there. But that is, these are the kings, just so, so you guys are kind of aware. Some of these kings are mentioned in other books when they are reigning. Daniel just doesn't have anything to report within those time periods that he's in the kingdom. So um, Jeremiah and Second Kings, Second Chronicles, they're going to talk a little bit about um, Amel Marduk and um, Nergalasar, um, and then Nabonidus and Labashi Marduk. Those are ones that ultimately we have found from the Babylonian Chronicles uh, that we have discovered in, archeolo- in, archeolog- in our archaeological digs, essentially. So um, those, that's that. But in terms of the kingdoms, there are these two prominent views. So this is what I want to go through a little bit. 742, all right. I'm trying to be quick, but this is, I'm trying also not to cheap you guys out, you know? The good news is that chapter 7 kind of comes back to this. So even though we won't get to get too far into the weeds in this chapter, chapter 7, most people believe is, um, it kind of retells this story in a sense, but with beasts. And so that's when we see the lion with wings and the bear with ribs in his mouth and the leopard and that unknown fourth beast. So anyways, so we'll kind of be able to reclaim this a little bit. But two major views, two major views are both seeing these as kingdoms. The first is the Neo-Babylonian kingdom. That's the one that we're talking about with Nebuchadnezzar. The second one um, is either Median, the Median kingdom, or the Medo-Persian kingdom. That's because it is fairly... Um, it's, it's accepted fairly wi- like widely that the, the Medes and the Persians, they were a, a kingdom associated with each other, uh, that they, they actually were um, together for a lot of their kingdom. And uh, kind of like the Babylonians and the Medes before that, honestly, the Babylonians and the Medes teamed up to take down the Assyrians. And when the Babylonians lost power, the Medes kind of got joined in with the Persians. Um, and so what we're seeing is a, is a tandem kingdom there. So the traditional view, when it says traditional view, this is the view taken by um, history. It's, a, it's the view taken by most scholars, especially ones that are more conservative theologically. Um, and then the other one is a liberal, which again, this isn't a, it's not political. It's, in terms of scholarship, it's just one that, again, they read the word of God, but don't necessarily consider it the word of God. These are historical documents for them. And um, they're going to naturally reject some of these things because they reject prophecy in general. And so for them, they've got to make sense of it naturalistically. Now, the point is that these still have really good reasons. They have really good reasons why they believe these things. You know, it's not, it's not, a, it's not a silly claim um, by any means. And uh, there's a lot of even some conservative theologians that also believe this as well. So it's a, it's a valid, valid belief. But it's, all, it's that the Median and the Persian empires are actually separate, that Daniel's separating those. And then the last one uh, for the liberal view is the Grecian Empire, the Greek Empire. It is the one that consists of Alexander the Great. Um, Once Alexander the Great dies, his kingdom gets split up into four different quadrants, uh, which some people then associate with the toes. And we will 
well, and really the legs and, and feet as well. But we'll get to that when we get to chapter 7, when we get into the history of the Greek Empire. Because that becomes particularly exciting, honestly, uh, especially when we start talking about Antiochus Epiphany. It becomes really necessary to get into the story of the Maccabees. Have you guys ever heard the story of the Maccabees? Raise your hand if you've heard that. Yeah. A couple of you. Uh, it involves, really, uh, they're, they're part of the reason Hanukkah is, is a holiday. So we'll even kind of talk about that, which is the Feast of Dedication that is talked, John talks about a little bit. Um, anyways, we'll talk about that history and what goes into that. The traditional view sees the last empire as Rome. So they, they join the Medo-Persian, they see the Greeks as the third, and then the Roman one is ultimately the one that gets rocked. Literally. It gets hit by a stone. And the whole statue shatters. And the point of all of this is that this powerful stone reaches backward and forward to decimate any earthly kingdom because of the way in which the heavenly one eclipses everything. Now, I wanted to read for you some New Testament passages that kind of go into how Jesus fulfills this stone aspect. And so I'm going to summarize them for you instead, okay? Uh, The first one specifically is from Luke It's from Luke chapter 14, I believe. No, 20. Oh, yeah, it's from Luke 20. And when he's talking about Jesus being the cornerstone, that that everyone will be crushed by this cornerstone, right? And then we also see 1 Peter 2, 4 through 9. 1 Peter 2, 4 through 9, who says that Jesus is the cornerstone, the builders, the caps on the builders rejected, right? But what he says in 1 Peter 2, 4 through 9 is a beautiful thing, is when not only is Jesus the cornerstone that crushes those who stand against it because of its weight of glory and goodness, but it also becomes the first stone that the building is built around, the cornerstone, right? If you're a builder, you kind of know that terminology, that cornerstone is the one that ultimately begins to inform all of the rest. And what it begins to say is that ultimately our lives become the temple where the Holy Spirit dwells, where the presence of God lives, and that Jesus um, really is the beginning, the cornerstone of this temple that we're now a part of, that the church is a part of, that the bride is a part of, that the vine is a part of. There are so many images used throughout Scripture that are specifically speaking of this mighty, mighty bridegroom relationship, this temple where the Holy God dwells. We are that temple. And what this rock is beginning to show is that it's going to shatter every single kingdom and in doing so, set up a kingdom that expands and it expands and it expands until it just moves over the, eclipses everything. It eclipses the entire earth in a way that no other kingdom can set itself up against it. Now, there are a couple of reasons uh, why we think this is Rome. Again, the most, uh, Josephus was a Jew writing in the 2nd century A.D., um, and he believes it was Rome as well. So even from a Jewish interpretation, they believed it was Rome. Uh, all of the, the church fathers that we know of within the first couple centuries, within like uh, Luther, Calvin, uh, even contemporary scholars believe that this is Rome because when Jesus died on the cross and rose again, a kingdom began to take place. Well, actually before that, right? What did Jesus say? If you see demons cast out before you, you know the kingdom of God has come upon you, right? So the kingdom of God came upon the world when Jesus entered it, and then it just expanded like crazy when he died and rose again. And when the Spirit came down, again, talking about that cornerstone, the things being heaped up on top so that this great mountain begins to form so that nobody can miss it, ever since that day, this kingdom has been expanding, that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That when we look back through time, what we begin to see is a country like ours, but not just ours, every single country over the entire globe affected by this message of Christianity. That 12 
poor men decided was worth dying for, giving their life for, and it expanded to 1,000, to 3,000, to 5,000, so that the Roman Empire would become not the Roman Empire anymore, and it would fall in the 400 AD, and then ultimately it would be left with a piece of it, the Eastern Empire. But then Christianity would spread into the barbarians, into the, the nations surrounding it, into Russia, into everywhere, ultimately infiltrating every single part. And they, even now, even now, it, you know, I was just talking to some, somebody else about this the other day. Sometimes we believe, we get so lost in our world and we've become so, uh, you know, our, our lenses that we're seeing the world, when it, they just, they're, they're so personal. But we forget that and we look at the church, we look at the church around you know, within America and we just, we're like, man, is everything going to be okay? We look at the current events, we look at the news, is everything going to be okay? Forgetting that in Latin America and South America, within that area, within Africa, within Asia, it's exploding. Christianity is exploding there. Hundreds of millions of Christians came to know Jesus in China, just in China. There are people all over the world that are dying for this message. And when we're talking about sending people to Japan, we're not making a joke. There are things happening there that are God's power. When we're planning, we're trying to just help plant churches over there, it's because things are happening over there that we cannot explain. Their cultures are being radically changed by the message of the gospel. This is an expanding kingdom, and it will eclipse every single other. It doesn't mean that we won't see everything not in subject to it, right? That's what Romans 8 says. That we hope and we don't see everything subject to, to God. And I think Hebrews 4 maybe says that too. And yet, and yet we know that there's a king over it all. And he's patient. He's patiently awaiting his saints. He's patiently awaiting his saints to come in. That's what he's waiting for. He's waiting for that mountain to grow. He's waiting for that mountain to get bigger. So I want to talk about this more. We don't have time. So we'll have to hit it again when we get to chapter 7. So I will give you this though. Chapter 7 talks again about these four kingdoms. Again, it's pretty much accepted that those kingdoms are the exact same that are being talked about in chapter 2. And so when we talk about those, we're going to talk about why people make a big deal about the toes on the statue. Because the toes are never mentioned in this chapter. And, and what I really want to make the point of too, is that there's a reason only two kingdoms are. Daniel makes, mentions two kingdoms. One is Nebuchadnezzar's. The other one is God's. Because when we start getting like, caught up in these details of what these kingdoms are and when they will come and when God will do all these things, we're missing the point. God is in control. Nothing is meaningless. Nothing is purposeless. God is moving history in a direction and he's inviting us to be a part of it. And as soon as we miss that fact, we've completely missed the wisdom that God is trying to give. And most importantly about this chapter, why, why the details are not given about these kingdoms in addition to that is because God is so much more concerned for you to see his wisdom and power throughout this, the whole thing. It is, it is a secondary, very much a secondary reality that Daniel blesses us with some of the details of this vision. But what, if you aren't missing what's actually happening, the fact that Daniel told a man his dream without, never, without ever having known it, the fact that he was able to interpret the dream and look into the future and say what was going to happen, and in doing so because he was revealed wisdom, you're missing the point. And Tremper Longman does a, a really incredible job talking about wisdom and the meaning of wisdom and talking about Proverbs and this beautiful landscape that is set up. In chapter 9, you can see there's two hills and one is, on one hill is this woman, and she's beautiful, and she's calling out to every single passerby, come into my house, and it's wisdom. 
It's saying, come into my house. And she gets these others to come and beckon people in. And then on this other hill, it's folly. And she's a prostitute. But she's gorgeous. And she has a, a, a voice that nobody is, is neglecting. And so many times we get caught up in this voice of promises that those promises just won't hold. The reality is that wisdom comes from knowing Christ. Christ is the wisdom. Christ is the relationship. That is what Colossians says. That, uh, I, I did write this down. And this is worth, before you guys go. I know you guys are like, okay, it's cold outside, so I guess I'll stay. Well, first off, let me read this. 1 Corinthians 1. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews asked for signs and Greeks searched for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To Jews, a stumbling block and to Gentiles, foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Colossians 2, that their hearts, he prays that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is in Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And then in James 3, only, we can only get to James 3 when we first have Jesus. We can only begin to interpret true wisdom when first we have accepted into our life that wisdom, the logos, the rationale, the thing, the philosophical, philosophical death that makes all of reality intelligible to us. Only when we begin to accept this God, James 3, who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior, his deeds, and the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering without hypocrisy. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Now, I know I said I was going to be done after that, but then I realized I didn't read the best part of chapter 2. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a request to the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained at the king's court. Here's what we're going to end with tonight. Trevor Longman says it well. The most powerful pagan king bowed to a Jewish exiled servant. May we bow to Christ, who is our Jewish exiled servant, but has reclaimed that great, glorious throne. Let me pray for us. Father God, you are good and holy and faithful. And you are in control. Father, not a particle, subatomic particle moves without your knowledge. And you sustain all things. 
God, you are faithful, and we pray that in our trials we would run to you instead of from you. We pray that we would be more content with your answers in our prayers, and that, God, you would continue to change us and move us into a life that is obedient and so willing, God, to surrender ours knowing that you will give it back again. Father, we're thankful for a kingdom that is unshakable, that is enduring, and that stands up and far above anything that could ever put itself against it, God. We are, we are so ready for your return, Lord. But until, until that time comes, Father, let us be faithful to the work you have for us, awaiting your saints, God. I pray that every single one of us would, would continue to be that light on a hill, inviting others into this glorious mountain that is being built. God, we love you. And it's in your son's name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thanks for hanging with me. The assignment for next week. Read Daniel chapter 3. Same thing, right? And then do every paragraph. Same thing. Label every paragraph. Note all the recurrences. And in addition to that, start to put in observations. All right? So this is kind of an, an additional part of this inductive Bible study. What are you, like, ask, go through each paragraph, each sentence, and say, why this? Or what is this? If you don't know what it is, say, what is that? If you don't know why this is happening, say, why is that? Why did, why did they go back and use their Aramaic names again at the end of Daniel chapter 2? Those types of questions. So those are what we call observations. Like, this is happening, and I'm curious. So, all right. That's your homework. Thanks, guys. Thanks again for checking out this podcast. We hope this teaching helped you to discover completeness in Jesus and encourages you to help others do the same. For more resources or to learn about Christ Church in general, visit us online at cco.church.